Good morning. As John said, my name is Mike Hogan. I come from Portland, Oregon. And let's just say yesterday was a little bit of an ordeal to get to Bozeman. On a Wednesday in Denver, you have to go Portland, Denver, Denver, Bozeman to get here. And uh, on Wednesday, there was these hailstorms in Denver that literally smashed the windshields of most of United's planes. So on Friday, I knew about this, so I called United, and on Friday, I'm like, hey, are, am I still going to make that connection, Denver to Bozeman? They're like, all the planes are fixed, don't worry about it. So I land in Denver yesterday, and of course, like, all the flights to Bozeman are canceled. And then I'm like, I checked Google Maps, and I'm like, oh, it's like a 10-hour drive. I wouldn't make it, so John would probably have to be the one preaching last night at church. Uh, so I ran to Frontier, and they had a couple tickets, bought a ticket, made it here in time to preach yesterday. But I was sweating bullets. But I'm glad I made it here. I uh, had a great time last night with this uh, service. I could tell that this is one, it seems like this is one of your first really good weather weekends. Is that right? Because there was not many people in the Saturday night service last night. They were all out hanging out. So thank you. The Lord will bless your uh, your faithfulness this morning by coming even when the sun is out outside. Um, in, from Portland right now, my wife told me this morning it is raining. So I'm glad to be here and not there. Um, have you guys ever had a friend or family member, loved one or spouse, and you just knew them so well, but then years into the relationship, you, hear, you learn something about them that just totally shocks you. You're like, what? I didn't know that about you. Have you guys had this experience? I think a lot of us have. Well, um, after I finished college at UC Santa Cruz, I started working for a campus ministry called InterVarsity. And uh, in InterVarsity, I worked with this guy named Jason Workwald Schmidt, uh, and we both did campus ministry together. And through that, we became best friends. And Jason, I knew everything about him. Uh, we, would, we played basketball together, we went to games together, we served students together. Once a month, we did accountability, and we'd meet together and share about our struggles. He'd talk about his marriage, and we'd pray for each other. And I really thought I knew everything about Jason. He was my best friend. But then one day, I went with Jason and his wife to his parents' house in Stockton, California, and we're having dinner. And in the middle of dinner, Mrs. Rickwall, Jason's mom, says to Jason, Jason, do you want to see this year your Christmas Hummel? Now, does anyone here know what a Hummel is? Raise your hand, be honest. Note that it's no one that is very young. Hummels, as you'll see on this next slide, these are German porcelain dolls made in the 20s and 30s. They're selling eBay for up to $500 each. These things are cute, I guess. And the bottom line is that no 26-year-old man should own a Hummel. (laughs) Not at all. Not cool. Well, Jason started to shrink down, and I started to get excited, and I'm like, Mrs. Rickwold, I'd love to see Jason's Christmas Hummel. And she has me turn around, and there's this huge case in their living room where there's one Hummel for every year he's been alive, so 26 Hummels. Jason's rich. This is going to be his kid's college education down the road. And Jason was just shocked, and I was shocked. Like, how did he, he keep this from me? I didn't know that my best friend was a closet Hummel collector. Well, ironically, a year later, my grandma came to me and said, Michael, when, when I pass away, here's what I'm going to leave you. A Hummel nativity scene. So Jason and I were the only guys in the 20s that 
own hummels. Um, so that's a silly story, but the, the reality is that we've all had that experience. We're, we know someone, we think we know everything about them, and then one day we're just blindsided, and we're like, what? I didn't know that about you. And for me, in, I've been following Jesus 20 plus years, and it makes me think, are there things about Jesus that I don't know about yet, that I don't, things that he's absolutely passionate about that I'm not aware of yet? Are, are my, is my heart lined up with all the things that makes Jesus' heart excited and that he's passionate about? So it makes me ask the question, what are those things that I might be missing as a follower that Jesus absolutely deeply loves? Well, we can look at the church, which is supposed to be the representation of Christ on earth, and see some of the things that Jesus is passionate about. We know that Jesus is passionate about the lost and evangelism and sharing the gospel, and Jesus is passionate about people in need. If you look at the church for hundreds, if not 2,000 years, we have been sharing the gospel, planting churches, uh, sending out missionaries, building hospitals, providing poverty relief, health care, food for the hungry. And in so doing, we've shown the world that God loves the world and God is passionate about these things, poverty relief, mercy, compassion, and evangelism. And if you look at even how the church spends its money, the church in the U.S. spends about $6 billion a year to fund church planting and evangelism efforts around the world. And the church in the U.S. spends about $9 billion a year to fund poverty relief, disaster relief, aid, care for the homeless. And these things show the world that God loves the world. And these things show us two things that Jesus is really deeply passionate about. Evangelism and mercy. But one part of God's heart that I believe that we as the church have really missed out is God's deep, passionate heart for justice. What is justice? What is injustice? We just don't see it all that much in our lives here in the U.S. Well, let me give you an example of injustice. A couple months ago, I was going to a potluck in Portland, and there's uh, these stores called Freddie Myers. They're like a, ster- uh, a Safeway on steroids. They're like huge, kind of like a, wall- a Walmart or something. And I was running late to the potluck, and I hadn't gotten anything yet, so I ran there, grabbed whatever I was getting, and I went to the express line, which is 10 items or less. 10 items, note that. The guy in front of me had 13 items. 13 items in the 10 items or less line. I was ticked off. I was looking for management to set this guy straight because that was an injustice, and I was the victim of this guy's abuse. That is not really the injustice that we're talking about today. I think what God may have been concerned about in that moment was my heart and learning to be more patient. The type of injustice that God burns over is that the reality that right now as we are worshiping God, as we're sitting here in church on a Sunday, 27 million people are living in slavery. 27 men, women, children, just like your sons and daughters, are living in slavery. Now that number is kind of hard to wrap our minds around, so I once tallied up the populations of all the states in the Northwest and the Mountain States, 
And if you add up the populations of Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, and North and South Dakota combined, that doesn't even total 27 million people. There are more slaves than all the people in all those states. All of you, your friends, family member, everyone in Bozeman, all would be in slavery. That number's just staggering. And we've all heard about slavery. We learned about it in history, in school. But if you add up the number of slaves taken out of Africa during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, there are more slaves in the world now than that entire sum of a 400-year slave trade that we all have heard tons about. It's just utterly staggering how many slaves are in our world today. But slavery is a little difficult. It's hard for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around because how many of us have met a slave? Not many of us. We met people in, in need of hearing the gospel. We met people in need of a home or shelter or medical care. But slavery, it seems like something from the history books. Now, I work for International Justice Mission, and we have 16 offices around the world that are trying to combat various injustices, and one of those is slavery. And my colleagues in India got to meet a little girl, eight-year-old girl named Shama. Now, Shama, she grew up in a poor family, and her mother was giving birth and there were some complications during the birth. And so they had to hire a doctor, cost them $25 and they didn't have $25. So her family had to borrow money from a local money lender. 25 bucks, that's not much to us, but for her family, that was a ton of money. And in order for this family to pay back the money lender, the money lender said Shama had to come and work for him. He was gonna pay her 50 cents a week 50 cents a week to work six days, 12 to 14 hours a day, rolling these little beady cigarettes. If she didn't hit a quota of 2,000 per day, he would beat her, and he would count that she didn't work that week and she wouldn't pay her. She had to hit this quota that felt oppressive every day. Her debt was going to go on for years at this rate. She was only given one 15-minute break per day. Imagine if your child had to work in conditions like that every day to pay back a debt that your family incurred. Shama is one of what some people estimate to be two or 10 million children in slave-like conditions in India alone. 10 million children in India. How are these 27 million slaves or the 10 million children in India or how is Shama supposed to believe that our God is good, our God cares about them, and our God wants to do something about their situation? We as Christians, how are we supposed to view this? I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus to look to the word, to look to the scriptures, to see what does God say about injustice and about our role. We're going to first look at a passage in Genesis, Genesis chapter 18. And this passage comes after God has made this covenant with Abraham, where Abraham's descendants are to be a blessing to all the nations. So this is kind of a snapshot into why did God create this covenant with Abraham? What was the purpose of that covenant? It says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Know for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So there's three things from this passage that I want to highlight. First is that in God's original plan, his original intention is that his people, he made this covenant for the very purpose that his people would bless the nations. That's the very purpose, that they would bless the nations. And secondly, the way God is going to bless the nations, the way his people will do that is by being people that bring righteousness and justice to the world. And third, if you look at the Hebrew, the righteousness and justice, it's not just about a moral righteousness, it's about being rightness where there's wrong, good where there's evil, correcting systems in society that are broken and oppressing and hurting other people. It's about bringing light where there's darkness. So that's the very beginning in Genesis, the very purpose of the promise. But then if you jump ahead to the Gospels, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his followers, his disciples, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say, you could be the light of the world, or you should be the light of the world, or I hope you turn out to be the light of the world. Jesus says that we actually, as followers of him, are his light to the world. It is our destiny, it's our purpose, it's who he has created us to be. If you woke up this morning and wondered, is my life just going to work? Is it just being, you know, raising kids? Is it, what, what is my purpose? Know this, that God has given each one of us this beautiful vision and purpose, and that is to be his light to those that are suffering in darkness. That is a beautiful call that he's given to each one of us, to his church, to be his plan, to be his light to those that are in darkness in our world. But I wonder if we as the church have missed out on blessing the world. We bless the world by sharing the gospel and by caring for people in need, but we have missed out on blessing the world by bringing God's justice and righteousness that he so longs for. The church, when it provides poverty relief and aid, that's great, but it only touches the symptoms. When the church brings God's justice to this world, we are actually getting to the core and root of the problems that are causing so much pain for people. Now, what really is injustice? I gave that funny story earlier, but there's a good example in Scripture of what injustice really looks like, and that's actually King David. King David, every, you know, is described as a man after God's own heart. He's a follower of God. He loves God. But one day, he's out on the roof of his uh, of his home, and he looks out and he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he desires her. And he decides to use his power as king to take Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. He takes another man's wife from him, and then he later uses his power as king to have Uriah the Hittite killed. He takes a man's wife and then his life. That is injustice. When uh, someone uses their power to take from another human being the good things that God intended for them, their life, their liberty, the good things that God has given them. And then, in the Psalm 10 that you heard earlier, it says in verse 8 and 9, He lies in wait near villages. From ambush he murders the innocent. 
watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. Now, when I started reading Scripture more seriously in college, I thought, this stuff is just hyperbole, or it's talking about a spiritual realm. But the more I've learned about injustice in this world, I've realized that these cries that you see in the Psalms and all throughout the Old Testament are people suffering in real ways at the hand of real oppressors, people just like Jyoti. Jyoti was a girl, 16-year-old girl, lived in a village in rural India, and she felt a burden as the oldest child to help contribute financially to her family. So a woman came to Jyoti and told her about an opportunity to go work in a nearby city, and Jyoti went with her, and on the train, this woman gave her uh, some tea, and the tea was drugged, and Jyoti passed out. And when she woke up, she woke up in an utter nightmare. She had been sold to a brothel. She was forced to service men 10, 12, 14 times per day. She was forced to have two abortions. She contracted HIV AIDS. She lived a horrific life. She woke up in an utter nightmare. The UN estimates that between one and two million children are trafficked into the sex trade every year. How are these children, or how is Jyoti supposed to believe that our God is good? How are we supposed to believe that our God is good? How are we as Christians supposed to view this suffering? And again, we go back to the Word of God. In Psalm 10, it ends With you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This is good news that our God does not sit idly on the sidelines, but he hears the cry of those suffering. He hears the cry of Shama, of Jyoti, and he acts. And as we saw in Genesis and Matthew 5, he sends us. We are his people meant to be a blessing and light to those that are in darkness on our planet. And then you see all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets call the people of God to bring justice to those who have no justice. In Micah 6.8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Three simple things And to do justice is the number one thing on that list. God has called each one of us to this amazing vision of being his light to those in darkness in our world. But I don't know about you. When I hear stats like 27 million, 2 million children, when I hear stories like Shama and Jyoti, I just feel overwhelmed. How can I actually make a difference? How can, how can I really be light to someone that's trapped in slavery? And I get bolted to my seat in despair. It's in these moments that we need to look to Jesus. And one story that I absolutely love is the feeding of the 5,000. You guys all probably, 
you know the story. The disciples, they've just gotten back from being sent out by Jesus for the first time, two by two. And they go out and, and they just preach the gospel. They cast out demons. They heal the sick. They just are so excited. And they come back and they tell Jesus all the stuff they've done. But they're exhausted. They've been giving of themselves. They have all these great stories, but they need to rest. They're, they're just tired. So Jesus rejoices with them and he says, let's get in a boat and let's go to a quiet place so you can rest. So they get in the boat and they go to this quiet place and there's 5,000 people there. So much for quiet. And the disciples are a little annoyed, but Jesus sees the crowd, and it says in the scriptures, they were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion. So he began to teach them. So the day goes on, the disciples are getting a little annoyed. They were promised quiet rest, and there's all these people, and they finally look at their watch, and they're like tapping their feet, and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, it's getting close to dinner. How about you send them home, you know? Meanwhile, they're thinking, we just want to rest, But Jesus turns to them and says, you give them something to eat. And in this moment, they're tired, they're cranky, and they see this overwhelming need that seems impossible to meet. And they say, Jesus, we cannot do this. Back to you, Jesus. And Jesus simply says in that moment, well, what do you have? What do you have? They look around. They find some kid who's got a few loaves and a few fishes. And they're like, how the heck's, how the heck's this going meet to this, meet this need? Andrew, who got his PhD in public policy at Montana State down the road, he's like, what are these among so many? He's the cynic. He's the realist. This isn't going to actually meet this need. But Jesus simply says in that moment, give them to me. Give them to me. And he's the one that takes responsibility for the miracle. And he ends up feeding 5,000 people that day. And there's tons of leftovers. Now, why do you think Jesus chose to do it this way? We know from Scripture, God has other methods to do massive feedings. When the Israelites were out in the desert, there was a manna dump. Jesus could have done another manna dump that day. Why did he choose to do it this particular way this day? I think he wanted to give one little boy the coolest day of his life. I'll bet that boy ran home and was thinking, I cannot wait for my mom to ask me if I ate my whole lunch. He was just so stoked. He gave a little bit and Jesus did such a great and powerful miracle through the little he gave. But what a small day that boy would have had had he chosen to keep his lunch for himself. What a small day he would have had. Shama is no longer held in slavery. My colleagues at IJM, we have on our staff investigators, lawyers, and social workers. Our investigators will go undercover and find instances where people are being held in slavery. And they found an instance where Shama was being held. They gathered the evidence, took that to our, our lawyers. Our lawyers wrote up an affidavit and we took that to the local magistrate. The magistrate then Uh, He couldn't meet with us that day. So we scheduled a meeting for the next Monday. So this was on a Friday, and then Monday was coming, uh, you know, so there's a whole weekend. And there's this huge opportunity for it to get leaked from the magistrate's office that IJM and the police are coming to rescue Shama. So at IJM, what we do is we pray. So we started to pray that weekend, and we uh, 
went to a church that Sunday, and we uh, started to ask them to pray with us. In fact, IJM, every one of our offices, we have 16 offices around the world, we all actually close down for an hour every day to pray. And so we went to this church, and we asked them to pray with us. And that Sunday, they had a guest preacher, just like you guys have. It was the magistrate that we were going to meet with the next day. And he was so moved by this story that he decided that he wouldn't only free Shama, but he would free all the children in his district that were being held in slavery, and that he would put pressure on all the magistrates in the districts around him to bring freedom to those children as well. Hundreds of children were freed And it's all because everyone at IJM, we are just utter geniuses. (laughs) Not at all. It is because our God hears the cry of Shammah. He hears the cry of those held in slavery, and He acts. He sent just simple Christians that worked for IJM to go be literal light and bring light to Shammah's darkness. Our God hears and He acts. He sent us. And Jyoti is no longer locked away in a brothel. Jyoti had, uh, when she was in this brothel, one of the girls told her about this God, Jesus. And Jyoti just felt so desperate and so overwhelmed that she began to pray and just simply say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus answered her prayer. Our investigators began to infiltrate that brothel. They went undercover and gathered evidence that Jyoti, along with some others, were being held there, underage girls. And we went with law enforcement, and we were able to rescue Jyoti. And we brought her to a Christian aftercare partner where she could get healed from the trauma of being abused in that way. And in that aftercare center, she gave her life to Christ. And then a month later, she heard that we were going to do another operation with the police, in Mumbai. And she said, I want to go and I want to be there for the girls that come out of the brothel because I know how traumatic that experience was for me. And I want to offer that love to them. So Jyoti went and she helped us find Kalindi. And Kalindi was so moved in that moment that she said, I know where more girls are being held. And in this film that you're going to see, Kalindi led us to this underground dungeon where girls, scores of girls, were locked away in this brutal underground dungeon, only to be brought out at night to service men. All of these girls were freed from the darkness of a dungeon and brought into the light of freedom, all because the body of Christ showed up for Jyoti. Jyoti showed up for Kalindi, and Kalindi showed up for these girls. On that one day, that boy had the most amazing day because he chose to not keep his lunch for himself, but he chose to freely give the little he had and give it to Jesus and allow Jesus to go be the one to do the miracle. My question for you is what are the loaves and fishes that you have in your own life? that you can give to Jesus and say, take these, Jesus, and help me be your light to those that are in darkness. I want to give you a few suggestions. The first is that all of us have influence. We have influence to influence our political leaders, 
All of you have these cards in your seats in front of you. And on the back of these are a pre-written letter to your, either your representative or your senator. William Wilberforce is a, a famous Christian English parliamentarian. He's one of my heroes of the faith. This guy, he introduced a bill in parliament 16 years in a row to abolish slavery in the English empire. That guy was perseverant. He, he faced so many obstacles, yet he persevered every year, brought that bill. And finally, God honored his perseverance, and slavery was brought down in the English empire. Well, in 2000, our government implemented a bill called the William Wilberforce uh, Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And it was the first step that the United States made to abolish modern-day slavery. But every few years, this bill is up for reauthorization, and this year it is. And our elected officials will only reauthorize it if they hear from you. So please, take a moment and fill these out to either Senator Tester or Bacchus. Fill it out even right now, and then there's an IJM table out in the, uh, the hall out there, and you can leave these in the basket. In fact, uh, Katie DeLong is a IJM Justice Advocate volunteer here in Bozeman, and she has meetings with Tester and Bacchus's office in September, and she would love it if members of Journey Church would go with her to that meeting. You can meet her outside in the hall as well after today. And our leaders, they actually listen. In Oregon, where I'm from, Ron Wyden was the person that actually put this bill out in the Senate because of the many times IJM people came and spoke to him. So fill this out today. That's one step we can all take. And if you want to stay connected to IJM, just fill this out. If you never want to hear from us again, check the box at the bottom and we won't send you an email or anything. So this is a way to get connected with us and take a step to end slavery today. A next step that I want to suggest is to educate yourself about these issues. Maybe today, for some of you, you're like, I've never, ever even heard about these issues of slavery or human trafficking. And you want to learn more about these issues. Our founder, Gary Haugen, he wrote a book called Good News About Injustice. And this gets more into what are the issues of injustice in our world today? And what does the Bible say about how we as the church need to respond to injustice? This is a great book. We're selling them for $10 out in the foyer. And then tonight, here at Journey Church at 6.30 p.m., we're going to be screening a documentary called At the End of Slavery. Please come tonight if you want to learn more about these issues. Bring your, your friends, your neighbors, your family members. And then Katie and I will talk more about how you can become an abolitionist here in the Bozeman area. The third and final thing I want to suggest is I want to invite all of you to become prayer partners with IJM. Our work is fueled by prayer. We need the church to be praying along with us. When you get that, if you fill out this card, and, and if you don't check that box, you'll get an email from us in a week or so, and it will give you the opportunity to become a prayer partner by just clicking a link. And then every Thursday, you'll get an email from us with real live prayer updates, like we're going to do this operation, or pray for this client, or pray for this field office, and we need your prayers. I want to close with one final story. When I worked for InterVarsity, I used to take uh, students either on an overseas mission trip or a uh, summer urban project where we'd live in the inner city part of our country and serve. And so uh, 
One summer, I took a group of students to a Los Angeles urban project, and we lived at a homeless shelter for families that were trying to overcome homelessness. And that summer, I got to meet this guy named Eric Wade. We were both 26 at the time, yet we came from two different worlds. When I was born, almost immediately, my parents and grandparents had put money into a college fund for me. It wasn't a question of whether I'd go to college, it was which one. So I had just a lot of opportunity in my life. Eric grew up in inner city LA. It wasn't even expected that he would even think of college, let alone graduate from high school. He grew up surrounded by gangs, drugs, just so many forces that were against him in challenges. By the time he was 26, he was married, four kids, his infant had been born on the streets in L.A., homeless. Eric was working hard to get his family to give them a life and a home. He had a job, and in the middle of that summer, he got in a car accident, and he couldn't afford to fix his car. He had to save up for it. So if he can't drive his car, he can't get to his job. If he can't get to his job, he's going to lose his job. If he loses his job, he's going to get kicked out of this homeless apartment program and his family would be back out on the streets. So I thought, at least for the summer, I could drive Eric. I could drive him to work. So I started doing that and, and we became fast friends. It was a 45-minute commute. We talked about all sorts of stuff, basketball, you know, shallow stuff, deep stuff about our faith. And one of the shallow things we talked about was cars. You know, a lot of guys... Talk about cars at some point. I had just bought my first car, new car ever, uh, six months before. In my, uh, I was you know new to you know borrowing, so my grandpa co-signed on the loan. I got a nice two point nine percent interest rate, very financially savvy. I asked Eric, "Where'd you get your car?" And he told me about this place in L.A. called Ugly Duck Used Cars. You've heard of it. Don't ever go there. 32% was his interest rate, 32%. In Scripture, that's called usury, where someone takes advantage of someone else's poverty and vulnerability for financial gain. And in that moment, something within me snapped, and I was absolutely livid. That was evil, an unjust way to take advantage of someone else's vulnerability. And in that moment, I knew that part of my journey in life needed to be being a voice for people like Eric, like Shama and like Jyoti, being a voice for the voiceless and calling us as followers of God to step into this journey of bringing justice to people like them that have no justice. Now, a mentor of mine had told me that God speaks to you in those moments through either what breaks your heart or what makes you mad. And I knew in that moment that's why God was speaking to me. But each one of you are going to have a moment in your life. I don't know when it's going to happen where you're going to hear a statistic or hear a story or see a friend hurting or see injustice with your very own eyes. And your heart is going to break so fully or you're going to just get so mad. And in that moment, that is an invitation from God. That's an invitation from God He's asking you to step into this great and beautiful and hard journey of being light to those in darkness. And on that day when it comes, don't say no, but step into it, even if it, you have no idea where it's going to take you. 
Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you so much. And we know that right now, as children are being brutally abused in brothels and people are held in slavery and widows are having their property stolen and people are locked away in prisons, we know, God, that you hear their cry and you don't sit on the sidelines, but you act. You call us, your people, your church, to rise up and to be your literal light to those in darkness. So God, I pray that you would give each person here at Journey Church the courage to be people that embrace your justice and be light in this world. Show us what are the loaves and fishes that each one of us has that we can give and that we would faithfully give them to you, God, and that you would magnify them to meet a a great need. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.